Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Slate Money is sponsored by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for a no-risk trial and a $110 bonus offer when you visit Stamps.com and use the promo code SLATEMONEY. And buy Harry's, the shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door. Visit Harry's.com for $5 off your first purchase with the promo code SLATEMONEY. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to the Don't Be Evil edition of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Salmon of Fusion, joined as always by Kathy O'Neill, the data scientist and blogger at mathbabe.org. Hi, Felix. And Slate's Moneybox columnist, Jordan Weissman. How you doing, Felix? I'm so happy that this is an exciting episode of Slate Money for a number of reasons. Uh, We're going to get to one of them in a minute. But first, I need to introduce our special guest. Because not only are we talking about a big raise for Walmart employees and the crazy funding rounds at Snapchat and Uber, we are also... Most excitingly, taking a look at the secret world of government debt collectors. And we have CNN Money's Melanie Hicken. Hi, Felix. Uh, Melanie is an investigative reporter. At least you have been for the past six months or so. Yes. And you have recently published a blockbuster investigation. I appreciate the kudos. Um... Now, okay, so we need to know all about it. What have you been up to? Who have you uncovered it's a shady law firm in texas so basically my colleague blake ellis and i have spent the last six months or so looking into what we like to call the secret world of government debt collection and we kind of stumbled upon it looking at complaints that were filed across the country we weren't looking for a debt collector we weren't looking for a law firm we just were kind of interested in who was being complained about who was screwing over consumers And we started to look at these complaints, and this name kept popping up, Leinberger, Goggin, Blair, and Sampson. 
sounded like a law firm. Didn't really know. <laughs> you got the ampersand, so. What else could it yeah, be? Yeah, exactly. And we put it in Google and, you know, a bunch of Yelp reviews came up and Ripoff Report and Better Business Bureau. And so we started thinking, huh, we should look into this a little bit more. And we discovered that not only was this law firm going after consumers for things like parking tickets and unpaid taxes, but there are a lot of firms doing this. And it's this whole other side of the debt collection industry that no one really knows about. So... Normally, so we had a few episodes ago, we had Jake Halpin on, who's written a book all about debt collectors. And what, as far as I, most of, I would say 99% of book, and the way I understand it is that when you default on a debt, you owe someone money, the bank or a car company or something, and then you don't pay them back. And eventually the bank or the car company will sell that debt to a bunch of debt collectors for pennies on the dollar who will then chase after you and try and guilt you into paying it. But that's not what's happening here. Yeah, no, it's actually almost opposite of that in that this debt is not being sold. It is debt that government agencies owe or own. So a local water district that's going after water bills or a school district in Texas that's going after property taxes that haven't been paid or a toll authority that is trying to get toll violators. And they hire these companies like Leinbarger to go after the debt, uh, but they never cede ownership of it. Leinbarger just gets to tack on their own fees on top of what people already owe. And that's where it gets kind of crazy. Yeah. So what was in reading your piece, what was kind of horrifying to me is it's almost the wor- for a consumer, it's the worst of all possible worlds. When a, a when you owe a private debt and a debt collector comes after you, there are certain federal rules about what they can and can't do. They really, they can't threaten you with jail, for instance. They can't like lie and say, "Oh, we're going to throw you in the you know in the clink because if you don't pay this." However, it's actually illegal for yeah, them it, to say that. It is illegal, exactly. But when it comes to these government debt collections, these lawyers who are really unscrupulous sounding from your descriptions basically have the entire power of the government behind them, so they can do things like say, "We're going to go and put you in jail for this debt." We're and, and what's more, people. Do go yeah. to jail. That was the cra- I mean, that was the craziest part is when we started looking into this. We found one man in Kansas who had gone to jail three times over a hundred dollar speeding ticket that he didn't pay. And for the government's side of this, he didn't pay it, and he missed court hearings because he was afraid about not paying it. And he didn't have a home of his own, and he was very poor, and so he was afraid to go to court. And he ended up getting jailed multiple times. And then once he was in jail, they added on $35 jail fees. So, so, so this reminds me of the <clears throat> the recent like NPR um, investigative reports called Guilty and Charged. Great. Um, which was an amazing report. But it, it, was, it focused, I think, more on the police actions, like the things that you would do to piss off the police and then they would get you. Whereas what you're talking about is wider than that, it sounds like. Oh, definitely. I mean, this is literally... Thousands of government agencies across the country are using these firms. And it's not just for speeding tickets. It's for things like parking tickets. I mean, you can not pay a parking ticket. And in some cases, we've been told even that can lead to an arrest warrant. So one of the things, I mean, aside from just the fact that they have the power of the government behind them, what was interesting to me about your article is just they still, despite having that authority, do some really unscrupulous stuff. Or it seems to and don't always even get or it seems unscrupulous, at least, to to a layperson. But at the same time, it seems like the scandal here is really sort of what's legal, right? 
that's the crazy part. I mean, if you've read our piece, which you can read at CNNMoney.com, got to throw in that. But um, there, it's perfectly legal. We we said that multiple times in our piece. You know, this is legal, and that's kind of the craziest part. So, so wait, what, what is the so scariest what is, thing? Wait, oh, sorry. Yeah, sorry. So what what exactly is it that the law firms are doing? Jordan is talking about unscrupulous behavior. So tell me, give me an example. The slogan is always, the scandal isn't what's illegal, the scandal is what's legal. What What is the scandalous legal stuff that these law firms are getting up to? So there's a few things. Number one, fees are really high. So state laws, certain state laws let them charge fees of up to 40%. So in Florida, if you don't pay a speeding ticket, that can, on top of what the government is charging in penalties and interest, then the law firm can charge 40% on top of that just because it's gone to collections. Me- Melanie, what what used to happen? What has changed and, like, how has this become private and, ha- and why and how can it be challenged? So it used to be that, you know, governments would go after this kind of stuff themselves or they might not go after it at all. And so that is the flip side of this is that they need this revenue and their argument is, hey, we want to build schools and police stations and pay firefighters, so we need this money. But they're let in... In hiring private firms to do this, they're letting these private firms tack on these really high fees and the government saying, hey, it's free for us, but just charge the debtors. But those debtors are their constituents. So it's this really weird it relationship. Seems like also, it, sounds, it's, it seems like there should be competition for this. Like in some other firms would not charge 40% fees, right? Well, but when it's in the law, they're like, hey, it's what the law says. So all the firms are charging these fees in most cases. There's no competition for this? I mean, it's a very competitive industry, but a lot of times they all offer to charge the same So what fee. do they compete on? Just the, the, the percentage of defaultees that they managed to get to pay? That's what they say, though here's the whole other side of our story and some of the, I think, unscrupulous behavior that Jordan was hitting at, which is that this law firm in particular that we looked at is really good at playing the political game and they spend a lot of money lobbying and funneling campaign donations and hiring consultants, some of which have been accused of bribery. And so they're using those ways to try to convince that council people to hire them or county commissioners or school board trustees. And one detail from your piece was, uh, was interesting. Is I mean, these firms sometimes put state legislators on their payroll, for instance. I mean, it's that level that of legal? institutionalized so corruption. So it's legal in Texas. <laughs> I'm sure well, it's legal in New York. Everything is legal in New York. <laughs> but yeah, it's crazy. There's one state lawmaker who has been paid almost $2 million by this firm all while she's serving on the state legislature. And she even registered as a lobbyist in the city of Houston. And she's a current elected official at the state. But that's totally legal. Well, they only sit every other year in Texas. They've got <laughs> to be able to do something for the rest of their time. So going back to how you challenge this, it sounds like there's just lots of like loopholes. I mean, there's no laws against this, so there should be, No, right? I mean, the main law that governs debt collection and that governs those guys that Jake's piece was on is called the Fair Debt. Collection Practices Act, and that only applies to consumer debt, which is a credit card bill, an auto loan, something like that. But since government debt usually isn't considered a service or a contract, so you haven't agreed to buy something. So a speeding ticket is a violation, taxes mm-hmm. are something you owe. So those aren't considered consumer transactions, and so there's basically no law governing the collection of it. So we could expand and then I have, the consumer I have a laws. Sort of very, your personal finance reporter when you're not an undercover investigative reporter. Um, I have a question because 
the one big takeaway from Jake Halpin's piece is if you get one of these nasty grams from a debt collector and they're telling you to turn up in court, what you do is you turn up in court and you say, show me where it says that you owe the debt and then they won't be able to and then you get to get get off scot-free. But that doesn't work with these. Yes, that's a great awesome point, which is that that is a big proponent or a big piece of the law says they have to show you proof. The government doesn't have to show you proof. For for consumer debt. For consumer debt, But not for this debt. So we talked to one man who got a $112,000 bill from Lionberger for the state of Oklahoma for business sales taxes that they said he hadn't paid. He knew he had paid them, but they were, you know, seven years old. So he goes to his bank and his bank has said, hey, we purged those records already. We don't have proof you paid this. So then the man literally for months had to hire an attorney and was battling with them, trying to say, hey, the state gave you bad information. I paid this. And they said, we don't care. Like, they told us you owe this. And eventually, finally, his accountant found paperwork in like a warehouse and it was going to be shredded soon. It was a very long ordeal. But the burden of proof is is not on the person bringing the claim to prove that nope. you owe the money. The burden is proof on the person being sued to prove that they don't owe the money. Exactly. But what, what, what prevents yeah, them from making ass. stuff it's... up whole cloth? Like, what prevents that? I mean, they, as far as we can tell, a lot of times this problematic information really is coming from the government itself. So it's it's not even that the law firm is making stuff up. It's that the it, government is giving them bad information. I mean, but all in all institutions have bad information. If you, I mean, that's the reason why we have courts as checks and balance on the government, right? So the court, but the court just automatically assumes that whatever the government says is true. This law firm does, yeah. And a lot of times they're not even suing. I mean, sometimes they sue people. They do a ton of foreclosure suits where they literally can sell people's homes on the courthouse steps. But they also send these letters and call, phone calls and with the power of the government behind them saying an arrest warrant has been issued for you. You need to pay this bill. This is outrageous. Can you tell me what kind – just give us a sense of what sorts of governments are using it now. Is it like – how – you know, in Texas it happens, but it's all around the country. Oh, just it's, like, it's everywhere. Right here, New York City is one of their newest clients. They hired them a few years ago. Uh, right after they hired them, they sent a bill to a Brooklyn woman, billing her for the damage that to the police car that killed her son. Yeah, that was I saw I read that. It was oh, just, that was heartbreaking. My God, yeah, I, was, I, just, I, re- I read the story yesterday, and I have exactly the same response today. <laughs> I, I, it's just unbelievable. I couldn't believe. Yeah, I couldn't believe that. I mean, that's the thing, readers. I mean, that one is people hear that and they're they're like, what? Like. <laughs> How like I mean you yes like the guy p- paid his taxes but the government screwed it up but like billing someone for the damage to- is there any sign that any legislators are are pushing to reform this system in any part of the country that this is even they are aware that this is becoming a problem so we when reporting this out reached out to lawmakers and the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and you know different attorney generals and, or attorneys general and all those, you know, a bunch of government agencies. And it really sounded like they hadn't they didn't even really know this was going on. I mean, everyone had heard about how the IRS used private collectors, which Lineberger was one of them. Um, but people don't really know about this more local level, especially on the federal lawmaker level. Mm-hmm. So we have been reaching out to them now that our story is live saying, do you have comments? Like, is this something that you want to look into. And it does, you know, we are hearing, especially from consumer groups. I mean, the National Consumer Law Center has told us 
this is something that needs to be changed. This is terrible. Um, the ACLU is interested in looking into it. I mean, it's it's something they they said they think it's definitely something that might be worth looking at. Well, I good for you. Hope that you you single handedly manage to change the law <laughs> and and start bringing a little bit of oversight to this practice. I'm sure it will happen overnight because we have a very efficient system yes. of, of and government. Congress loves to change laws, right? <laughs> They're really good at that. Wow. Um, thank you for for explaining that to us. So I'm 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 unbelievably excited to say that not only is Slate Money sponsored by Stamps.com this week, but we have the one and only. Kathy O'Neill, who does not just pitch for any old company. No, Felix, I pitch for Stamps.com. She will explain why Stamps.com is the best company. Well, okay, Here's what, here, here we go. So computers are designed to make running a business easier, including your mailing and shipping. So you should use Stamps.com to get 24-hour access to the post office right from your computer. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, and then just hand it to your mail carrier. You never have to go to the post office again. And moreover, there's a special offer. I right? love special offers. Oh, yeah. Who doesn't? Right now, you can get this special offer from stamps.com. You can, it's a no-risk trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including up to $55 of free postage. Um, one of the things that excites me about the stamps.com offer <laughs> is that in the middle of the night when I can't sleep because I'm anxious over the book I'm writing and I just think, oh, my goodness, I, I, that's not right. I should send a letter to a friend and ask for advice. I don't have to wait for the post office to be open. I can just go there in the middle of the night to to stamps.com and 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 you know get my special offer which again is a no risk trial. I am very happy by the way that you still send letters to your friends using snail mail. I I actually sometimes do. I'm proud of you. Thank it's you. so nice to get a letter from a friend in the mail. It is. It's, a, and, it's and incredibly honestly, unique. I don't care whether where you bought the stamp or whether you printed it. But you know what? If you use this no-risk trial, you could get a $110 bonus offer, including up to $55 of free postage. So that would be a nice way of sending a letter. It would be convenient. So right now, you should go to stamps.com. You should click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and enter Slate Money. One word, Slate Money. Go to stamps.com. Click on the microphone and enter Slate Money. Thanks, Kathy. My pleasure. Okay, so Kathy. Yeah. <clears throat> now, now, now that we have learned all about amazing sponsors, let's hear about everyone's most favorite company they love to hate, Walmart. They have actually done something which isn't evil. Well, we're going to discuss how unevil this is. Um, so Walmart Let's is, not jump to conclusions. Walmart this week um, was in the news big time because they promised to raise wages all the way up to $9 an hour by April and then to $10 an hour by February of next year. And their stock market, their stock price uh, immediately went down by more than 3%. And we're talking minimum wages, their, their base pay. They're, they're, yeah, they, so all workers will be making at least $9. It's not like the people making more than that will go down yeah. to $9. No, they'll raise their minimum um, to uh, 9 mean, and then 10 Now, I my general feeling about a stock price move of 3% is that it's nothing, that it's noise. You can't really read anything into yeah, it. Yeah, maybe, maybe you're right. I mean, 3% isn't a huge amount. You're right. Um, but it, it's not certainly not positive response to uh, these news. Um, 
they also had smaller profit. So maybe that's another thing that's going on. But I, just in terms of scope of this, um, they have a workforce of like 1.3 million people and about 40% of their workforce is going to be affected by one of these uh, or both of these changes. So that's that's a big deal. It's We're a talking big about deal. half a million people getting a pay rise from they are the single biggest private sector employer, yes. yep. certainly in the country, if not the world, I think. Yeah, I don't know globally, mm-hmm. but definitely maybe. Um, Maybe Foxconn has something on them. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is this is a big deal for Walmart. Um, and not, I, I wouldn't say totally shocking from them. They're, I mean, they've been talking about investing. For the, the new CEO has been kind of talking about investing more in their workforce because they've had a, a real problem with, let's just say it, uh, morale. I mean, besides the protests that have been going on, the sort of pseudo-unionization movement, um, they've had just... Issues running their stores, keeping shelves stocked, turnover right. with employees. And customer service. And bad complaints. customer service, mm-hmm. exactly. And maybe you can tolerate that when people are shopping at Walmart in general because the economy is bad and people are going for the absolute cheapest price possible. But in a slowly improving economy, um, you kind of need to offer a little something more. So that, that's sort of the language he's been couching this in is this idea of we're trying to – that this is going to be profitable, that this is going to make us a better company by, mm-hmm. by paying a few dollars more to our workers. Yeah, I mean you definitely get the impression that – he was going to have to do it anyway, and he wanted to do it, or the, Walmart as a corporation wanted to get ahead of any kind of anything, anything that was more political, because they don't they want they don't want politicians to come in and tell them they have to pay fifteen dollars an hour, which is what, of course, the the people who are actually working at Walmart were asking for. Well, and they, I mean, I've been I covered Walmart last year, some of these protests, and Walmart really loves to try to do their own good publicity. So to me, this seemed exactly like they wanted to jump ahead of this and say, hey, look at what we're doing. Look how not evil we're being. We're going to give this huge pay raise to a lot of workers. But I just think it's crazy. I did the math. And when you do the math of still what $9 an hour is in a year, I mean, it's still less than... Especially when they deliberately cut the number of hours that people are allowed to work and force them to work bizarre hours. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I don't know if you guys read Hand to Mouth by Linda Torado, which is a recent book, where she talks about like living on minimum wage. And then she goes through this whole thing of calculating, actually, $10 an hour is really hard to live on. Yeah. And when you throw in that Walmart, again, as Felix says, not only doesn't give people full-time hours, but changes the hours regularly so they can't actually have a second job. Um, it, you know, they, I saw an interview by someone who's desperately trying to get full-time hours, but often comes home with $200 a week in pay. I mean, that's just not enough to live on. One thing they did say in this announcement is that they're going to work on that, on the scheduling issues. I mean, They said we, they're going to work on it. That's yeah, exactly. Not, that's it, nothing. It's, it's fuzzy. But it, they, they are at least acknowledging that it is I mean, Starbucks, in response to an article about the irregular working hours, d- decided to change it immediately. Like, I, think, I think there's probably a little bit more of a logistical challenge for Walmart to do that than Starbucks, <laughs> I, just because of the size of the workforce. But yeah, I mean, I, I agree. Starbucks they're, they're, has a really big workforce. It has that's a workforce. Yeah. I mean, true. the question I would keep on asking myself is why do they have such irregular hours? What is it What's good for it? It can't be good for morale. So what is it for? It's basically a pro- I mean, it's on-demand staffing. It's just like it's a avoiding overtime. That's part of it. Being able to match everyone to keep your labor costs as little as possible, and having knowing okay, I can call up this worker who's worked this much per week. It's all it's all basically decided by algorithm in a computer, and that's the yeah. thing. there's not much of a human a- aspect of it. And it has been very effective at keeping their labor costs down at, at a human toll. 
there's another issue here that a lot of people are talking about is how much this just reflects the improving state of the economy. How much of this is Walmart realizing wages are probably going to go up and they should have to do it. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, this, this increase is going to affect their wage bill by about 3% total, something along those lines. I actually don't have that number. It's, it's not huge. Um, and so... Although, I don't know. Walmart's wage bill is pretty huge. And and, and Walmart is legendary for squeezing margins to the penny wherever they can. A 3% increase in wages is the kind of thing which could cause heart attacks in Bentonville. I think I saw that it was around a billion dollars, I thought, or something. But what was their profit last year? (laughs) (laughs) A lot more than that, right? It's a a small part of their profit. The point being that there's a lot of... There, there, a lot of people think that wages are bound to start rising in general in the economy because right. unemployment is And we've is seen falling. that, right? What was that company we talked about a couple of weeks ago? Aetna, Aetna is doing right. it, exactly. And I guess you know they're, the trying to, they're trying to compete with Costco, they're tra- and they're losing people who are like, yeah. screw this, I can get better a better deal somewhere else. And that's a good sign for the economy. And, and one really interesting point um, that Ben Castleman at 538 made is that even though we haven't really seen overall wage growth take off yet, um, low-wage workers specifically have actually seen their, their, their pay increase a little faster than in the economy overall, which is the group that Walmart is targeting. So that might be factoring in here. But before now, we get too I was, excited... If I, mean, I was an evil company yeah, um, or just a computer algorithm trying to minimize my wages, yeah. then I would not announce a universal across-the-board pay rise for absolutely everyone in the company. I would increase wages in those areas where I needed to increase wages and not increase er wages in the areas where I didn't need to increase wages. So can we at least, Kathy, give Walmart the benefit of, hey, they're they're doing this across the board for everyone? So I, no. (laughs) I actually think that's that's more like we don't want this this union thing to work out. Was that a real risk? Uh, it was gaining momentum. It really was. I mean, you know more about it. Yeah, like- I mean, they were. They, there was definitely Black Friday was always the worst. I mean, but there were cases where they were pretty much having hundreds of people, you know, blacking stores and and just the PR. It was bad PR. Everyone's been talking about how Walmart workers, you know, end up being on food stamps. Like that is a common theme in the media and. I mean, I I think as the economy improves, as Jordan was saying, maybe people are going to be like, I'm not going to go to Walmart anymore because I'm going to go to Target or Costco or somewhere where it seems like workers get paid a little bit more. Well, so on which subject we should also very quickly bring up um, one of the big stories in the latest issue of Business Week, which is the container store, which famously, along with Costco and Zappos and a few other sort of second generation retailers pays its employees surprisingly well. I think it's like $48,000 a year for on, a, a, average. on average. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's like <laughs> double your typical retail pay. It, it's a serious... They, they really make good on that promise. And, um, and, and one of the problems that the container store is, this doesn't seem to be working out for them <laughs> as well as it used to be, <laughs> well, and their share price is halved in the past year. Well, that, that was the point. That, that was the, the tension that the Bloomberg piece was getting at, is that... You know, they have not been a public company until fairly recently. And so they came out, their stock skyrocketed pretty quickly. People had very high expectations for continued growth as a result, and they're having trouble delivering. And so, in shorter term, shareholders at the very least look at these high wages and go, 
do we really have to pay that much? Is well, okay. I, I, again, I'm going to have to like come out at a different angle. Like, I actually think it's it's great that people are being paid well. I think yep. that container stores, it's not the right time to be a container store. I mean, there's like a pretty simple explanation to this. What about all the people throwing away all their stuff? I mean, it, right? You know, right now, like seven years ago, ten years ago, people are like, I need containers for my stuff and now they're like i'm gonna throw away all this stuff i'm just saying like there's there's other <laughs> no one has stuff anymore well i'm not the saying you don't have any stuff but i'm just <laughs> saying it's not a huge growth <laughs> industry right now so I'm, I'm saying don't throw away the baby with the bathwater. And, and and i would yeah more or less agree with jordan that this is not for all of the framing in the headline a question about wages the real problem at the container store if it's a problem was that when it IPO'd, it had a price earnings multiple of like a gazillion. Yeah. And now it has a price earnings multiple, which is slightly more normal. And that means the share price has gone down, but nothing has really changed at the container store and it's still doing reasonably well. There was a great part of the article where the CEO talks about encountering a investor who is now worried about being able to pay for her kid's private school tuition. (laughs) And he's like, you know... I'm, he, he wanted to say, it was, I, I'm sorry you bought the stock when it was trading at 143 times <laughs> earnings. Like, and he, but he couldn't say that to her, that you made a very bad investment decision. So he said he just hugged her, which he, I mean, it's just kind of <laughs> speaks to this guy's like It sound a little mentality. bit strange in terms of all the hugs. Well, I mean, I mean he's, he's kind well, of a hippie. Like, he yeah. comes yeah. from that, like... I'm a hippie too, man. Late I don't, 70s. <laughs> I don't hug random people who are mad at me. I, I, it was actually really <laughs> interesting to me, like, the genealogy of the container store. It seemed to come out of that, like, late, same late 70s Texas hippie libertarian not even yeah hippie Texas libertarianism. hippie libertarian <laughs> yeah the Austin thing the, the, the same as Whole Foods, Whole Foods. okay exactly. got it Although, alright I don't think they, were they Austin or specific or they you Dallas know, they were Dallas they were Dallas specific. but it's the but same there, there was this yeah this sort of uh, dazed and confused sort of vibe you wonderful Slate Money listeners don't just get to listen to Kathy talking about stamps.com you also Get to listen to Jordan talking about Harry's, our other sponsor this week. Yeah, so, Felix, do you notice something about me today? I noticed your your hair was curly. My hair is curly. Also, I'm clean-shaven. Felix has, I'm pretty sure previously on the air, referred to me as one of the most poorly shaved men in journalism. (laughs) And that, it's true. I, I typically am. I have a thick wiry, very, like, Ashkenazi beard. I think it's becoming. It, I appreciate that, but it is a pain in the butt to shave. I mean, it is, I end with nicks, I, and I've, on top of that, I have sensitive skin. It's not, it's not a good combination, let me tell you. Anyway, so I really am picky about my razors. I really, I, I care about my razors. And so last night, I went out with a pretty thick growth on my face at that point that my, my fiance really wanted me to get rid of. I went and I tried Harry's. And let me tell you, they got the job, Harry's razors, they got the job done. Uh, Wait, so so, so this this beautiful baby-faced Jordan Weissman that I'm admiring right now is basically brought to me by Harry's Razor. So here's the deal. The, the starter set, which is what I was using yesterday, it's an amazing deal. For 15 bucks, you get a razor, moisturizing shave cream, and three razor blades. So here, here's what Harry's is. Harry's is a, you can buy razors online for for much cheaper than you would at a at CVS or at a drugstore it's about half off um 
they are they're great they're german engineered and you know it takes the hassle of going and waiting for some guy to open up the you know that that plastic case where they hide all the razor cartridges just go online buy your razors and they come to you in the mail uh they also have pretty good shaving cream i lathered up as unscented that was that was nice i I really personally dislike all those scented shaving creams that you have to usually find uh, again at the at the drugstore and and listen this on average an everyday shaver will save 150 dollars each year if you buy your blades at Harry's, that's it's a great deal, right? And you can. Shave. That's almost enough to make Jordan shave every day. It's almost enough, <laughs> exactly. It, it will keep this smooth baby face visage. So I'm really enjoying this, Jordan. So if you want to get a clean, close, and affordable shave, go to Harry's.com right now, and Harry's will give first-time customers five dollars off if you type in our coupon code. That's Slate Money, all one word, not case sensitive, with your first purchase. That's Harry's.com, H-A-R-R-Y-S.com, and enter coupon code SLATEMONEY. And again, first-time customers will get $5 off, and you can start shaving better today. So the first, I'm, I'm, I'm going to segue here. <laughs> okay. I'm going to segue <laughs> here segue. from Evil Walmart to the one company which everyone can agree is, is evil. Even if we which is Uber, which use it the, anyway. Which is the company I first encountered <laughs> in Austin when they were giving out um, pedicab rides in Uber <laughs> in, in, in at South by Southwest. I remember that a few years ago before everybody knew who Uber was. Now, of course, no one... This this is a company which needs no introduction. Um, we have all agreed on this podcast many times that Uber is evil. So I thought you actually loved Uber. Well, no, we agree it's evil. We disagree on whether or not that will ever actually hurt their business. That, yeah. is, that is so the, that, the point of disagreement, okay. Kathy, is, we- right. is whether anyone cares that it's evil enough to not use them. And in different countries, they, they seem to care a little bit. So, Jordan, what, what is the Uber news this week? So, yeah, they may be evil. Some other countries may care that they're evil. Investors do not care that they are evil. That is for sure. So Uber just expanded its latest funding round by $1 billion. What does that mean? It essentially means they have a $40 billion valuation. That's how much they think they're worth. They accepted a certain amount of private investment from different funds and whatnot uh, based on that number. And so many people still wanted to give them money that they were like, okay, we'll take some more of your cash. That's basically what they were so oversubscribed. Like, fine, we'll find something to do with this extra money. Um, So they, you know, and they have some very ambitious plans. So wait, so the the headline number here, which we really need to underscore, $2.8 billion. They have raised $2.8 billion in fresh equity at this $41, $42 billion valuation. And this is completely unprecedented in the history of the world, that any private company can raise that kind of money. Raising $2.8 billion in an IPO would be enormous, like in sort of top 10 of all IPOs. It would be really, really huge. Doing it privately is, I mean, up until this week, it was more or less inconceivable. I've never heard anything like it. Can I I throw in my two cents about this? Like, I'm not a VC myself, but I'm friends with some VCs. And what I've noticed is that VCs as a sort of class of people, they don't want to feel left out of like any one sort of hot industry. So, for example, there were like a million different data science as service companies and and every VC person I knew had some money in one of them. And now there's this new thing, which is like Uber and its competitors. And they all, of course, want a piece of that. So they want basically it's a way of diversifying their portfolio. They want 
a piece of every hot industry. And I feel like that is part of what's happening here, is that just every VC firm was just like, me, 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 I want part of Uber. So I think there's, yeah, I mean, uh, I think you have to start by talking about the, just the amount of venture capital money that's out there in general. Uh, it's not the whole story, and we'll get to that. But, you know, last year, venture capitalists invested about $48 billion across the economy, which was the most since, I believe, is either 2000 or 2001. And, you know, that still pales compared to what they were doing during the dot-com boom. In 2000, infl- uh, they invested about $144 billion once you adjust for inflation. Wow. But that was that was a huge spike. Usually, it was more in the 50, 40, 50, in, the, in that uh, billion-dollar range around those years. Um, that said, one of the Felix, you and I were talking about this earlier um, before we started recording. It's not just VCs anymore pouring money into these companies. It's other investors who want to kind of act like VCs. And well, that- yeah, it's it's also they're they're raising money directly from Fidelity Investments, from sovereign wealth funds, from pension funds. That you don't need to be a VC to be in these rounds anymore. Uh, that there are a bunch of investors who are looking at the stock market and who are looking at private companies and saying, well, I have a long time horizon. I don't need overnight liquidity for this investment. I think that Uber is a good long-term investment at a $40 billion valuation. I can buy in here, so I'll do that. So what you're seeing is that companies of Uber's sort of household name status are being able to raise money directly from investors without going public. And I, and that's new as well. So that so that strikes me in, intuitively as sort of a good thing in that you're getting these investors who are putting their money into young companies saying, grow, 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 and not expecting to immediately start extracting cash in the form of Well, that's of actually my question. Are they expecting it to go to IPO soon and then get their money back? So, yeah, I mean, maybe. So I guess that is a question then. Is there does the changing nature of who's investing in these companies change the expectations that come with the money? Well, I can guarantee you that none of these private companies are getting board seats. Yeah. So they really have no control. It's not you don't have a shareholder democracy in private companies. Yeah. The mm-hmm. company is run by the CEO and by the board. And the board isn't elected by shareholders in the way that it nominally is in public companies. So even if you own equity, that doesn't give you any actual control. So in that sense, if the company doesn't want to go public and Fidelity Investments wants it to go public, Fidelity Investments can go pound sand for all that (laughs) Uber cares. I'm just really surprised no one is worried about the regulatory issues. So, I mean, I live in Hoboken, New Jersey. And the city of Hoboken is currently ticketing Uber drivers because they say it is illegal for Uber drivers to operate in the city. Interesting. And and it seems like there's a growing movement in different places, definitely abroad, but even in the U.S. So what if all of a sudden, you know, people interpret the laws to say that Ubers aren't allowed because they're not properly licensed? It, it just seems like there's so many unanswered well, so, questions. So we, we've talked about this yeah. on, on the podcast a few times, that there are risks to all companies and this is a risk yeah. to Uber. Um, But, you know, clearly these are risks which, you know, are known and people are pricing in or people have decided uh, less of a risk now than they used to be. Oh, you're assuming that everyone's rational? Uber has. No, I'm saying that all, you know, this is clearly a risky investment. No one is taking this investment going, this is safe as houses. But they're saying there's a chance that Uber is going to be worth $200 billion. There's a chance it's going to be worth $2 billion. And plus, this is the one thing which I always, always have to emphasize whenever you're talking about private investments. These are secret deals 
We do not know what the terms are. We have not seen the term sheets. And very, very importantly, we do not know what the liquidity preferences are on these, on, on these rounds. Yeah. It is absolutely possible that you could buy into Uber at a $40 billion valuation right now. It could go public in a few years' time at $20 billion, and you could still make money. Yeah, these people are protected, or maybe protected. We don't them. know. Yeah, I still, I still want to hear a little, more, a little bit more from Melanie about whether Uber is evil in the eyes of of, pe- of the people of Hoboken. Well, it's fine. I, so, please I speak still, for Hoboken. I still use Uber. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, well, that's actually not the same question, though. You can use something and still think it's I evil. Mean, people I, shop at Walmart yeah, and think I, it's evil. I mean, it's like. It's so hard because I, I do agree. I think it's a great service. In a lot of ways, it's kind of changed my life in how much cheaper it is for me to get a cab from Manhattan to Hoboken. I mean, that used to be something you couldn't do because the fee, it was double the price of what I pay on an Uber. But every driver I've had just seems to complain about the company. And, you know, it's this is terrible and that is terrible. Well, what are their complaints? I, the one driver who told me about the tickets was saying how... Now, now Uber reimburses the tickets, yes? Uber does reimburse, but he, he kept saying, why is Uber sending us here when they know that we're going to get ticketed? And, But yeah, I mean, they're reimbursing, so I guess hmm. that... I will say that is... I don't know if we've, we've discussed this at length um, on the podcast, but one of the weaknesses that is less... One of Uber's less obvious weaknesses is the degree to which it relies on its driver network. And the fact that they essentially have a large group of kind of uh, of freelance workers who are networked together and mm-hmm. ha- can communicate can easily communicate with each other, and if they wanted to organize at some point in some loose or not so loose fashion, may be able to do that and could start moving on to a competitor like Lyft and on Mass if they really really wanted the to Uber Union. Yeah, the uh, that is. <laughs> It's, you know, our at Slate, Allison Grizzle's written on this a bit. Um, it, they, the drivers have a surprising amount of power, um, and Uber has to take care not to take And if off. people think drivers are unhappy, they might switch to Lyft. And I think that one of the things that we have heard over and over again about Uber is that it has this sort of head over heart thing that surge pricing is the prime example, that people intellectually understand it and understand why it makes sense, but they still really hate it. <laughs> and... Reimbursing tickets is another example. The Uber has this sort of intellectual idea of if you're a driver and you get a ticket and we pay you back for that, what do you care? Whereas drivers are like, you don't understand. I got pulled over for doing something wrong. I had to pay this ticket. This was not pleasant. Are they losing their points on their license? Is it like an actual yeah, personal? I don't know. I mean, but no, no, no. This is not a traffic no. violation. Okay. This is just it's a parking like violation. A city violation yeah but yeah but that is one way if a hoboken wanted to really stop uber they could do that they could make it and it's like the taxis in hoboken that were angry about uber so definitely so in you know i've got to imagine the new york city taxis you know they're not happy so no i think i'm not sure about that i have this theory that that um especially in new york city cab drivers should be happy about uber because it's competition um for drivers and so it forces the cab companies to pay the ca- the taxi drivers more because if they don't pay the tra- taxi drivers more, they'll just go drive an Uber instead. Yeah, and I, when I went to San Antonio, all the taxi drivers I used were also Uber drivers. So they did both. So, so I, before we end on this topic, I just want to come back to the subject of, of the money sloshing around in VC <laughs> land. Uh, and finish by talking about who the three most uh, valuable 
private or venture-backed startups are right now, or potentially will be. So another bit of news from this week is that Snapchat is looking for a round of funding that would value it at about $19 billion. Mm-hmm. You may recall that uh, they got a lot. their CEO got a lot of heat when he turned down a $3 billion offer to be bought by Facebook. It seems like that might be working out for him uh, in retrospect. Um, at $19 billion, that would put them at number three on the list. Number two would be Uber at its roughly $40 billion. Number one is actually a Chinese smartphone maker, uh, Xiaomi, uh, and they're about, again, $45 billion. And I think that just tells you a lot about kind of where people see the economy growing. It's tra- like new ways to do transportation via apps and then, you know, t- things that teenagers love and then China. And, 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 and <laughs> it's also worth noting that Snapchat has, to a first approximation, zero revenue. It's just starting to get revenues. Yeah. Um, but teens love it. Uber, no one really knows what its P&L looks like, but it has enormous revenues, but not clear that it has profits. And Xiaomi has substantial revenues and definitely is losing money. Uh, no one, you know, they're, they're all, they're all, everyone's sort of thinking that maybe at some point in the future it can make money in the cloud services somehow. But mainly right now it's a hardware manufacturer and it's, you know, losing money on every phone and making it up in volume. But this is, <laughs> this is somehow worth $45 billion. I love this world. It is time, it is time for our numbers that. round. And um, I think I'm going to start. I very rarely start the numbers round. But I'm going to start the numbers round because I want to uh, correct a cup, uh, well, a, a thing here. Um, one, when we had our last week, we had our sexy billionaires episode, and Jordan came in after having looked at the multi-gazillion billionaires at the top of the Forbes list and saying that he didn't think they were very sexy. And I said, I think there were some sexy billionaires. And so um, the great (laughs) financial journalist and former podcast guest and friend of mine, Shane Farrow, actually did some work on this one and managed to come up. She dated every single one of them. My number this week is seven. Which is the number of sexy billionaires that Shane Farrow has managed me? to come up with. I don't believe it. This is so subjective. <laughs> <laughs> this is almost the In- definition of Including the one who I mentioned last week whose name I couldn't remember, which is Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, God. Um, yeah, but she couldn't, be, she couldn't play Christian Grey. I mean, well, you could do so. Well, actually, um, but but yeah. she also says, okay, there's Roman Abramovich. He's kind of sexy. There's Sergey Brin when he takes off the Google Glass. That's just not even... Oh, come. There's for, for Pete's sake. Elon Musk when he wants to be. Oh, uh, I guess Elon Musk. Yeah, I guess that. There's I Mark Sheinberg. There's Peter Where Kellner. Are you, you're the only person re- responding to this. <laughs> there's Ernesto Bertarelli. And most interestingly, this is, this is actually number eight because he wasn't part of the original list. But on a good day, when he's holding a puppy... <laughs> There is Travis Kalanick, the CEO of Uber. And I have a photograph here. Now, you guys are are not going to be able to see this on the podcast, but I'm going to hand this around. And Melanie, you can tell me, do you think that Travis could count as a sexy billionaire based on the fact that he is holding a puppy? I I don't think so. He just looks very confused. (laughs) And the puppy looks very happy, I've got to say. The puppy is happy to be hanging with a evil CEO. Though, you know what? Given um, given the way he runs Uber, I, I guess we could sort of imagine he would at least have a red room like that. <laughs> That's not so I'm far. I'm actually going to go for a thumbs up on this picture. 
So okay. Kathy agrees that Travis can be sexy if he's yeah. holding a puppy. Okay. All right, Kathy, Fine. what's your, what's your number? <laughs> oh, wait, um, one more thing. Since I'm correcting previous episodes, I've been meaning to do this for the past three weeks, and I forget forgot every single week. I'm going to remember this week. When we did the Davos episode, I was comparing Davos in a bad light to Gavi, which is the big international vaccines campaign, and saying, look, Gavi does good things in the world, and Davos is just a gab fest. Not that Slate has anything against Gabfest. We we love Gabfest. Um, <laughs> the the fact is, and I should I should mention this for the record, Gavi is in many ways a creature of Davos and was kind of born at Davos. And if you want to give Davos credit for anything in this world, I would say that it's probably Gavi is a good one to give it credit for. Anyway, so it had like a good kid. I still basically. it had a good kid. Kathy, what's your number? Okay, my number is three hundred and three. It's the number of corporations that were given non-prosecution and deferred prosecution agreements between 2001-2014. Wow. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, I don't know if you guys know about this book, uh, Too Big to Jail, that recently came out by Brandon Garrett. If you don't want to read the book, you can read the New York Review of Books Review by Jed Rakoff, which is fantastic. That's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> uh, it, it is absolutely fantastic. Number one thing you learn when you read Judge Jed Rakoff, my, my hero, his review is that deferred prosecution was meant to help juvenile delinquents not get their life ruined when they did one thing wrong. And now it's being used a lot to help corporations do continue to do things wrong. That's a total, yeah, That that is Isn't total that, opposite. Mm-hmm. It's a bit of a mind Good This is go right. And yet Thank again. you for putting the explicit rating on the show. <laughs> uh, it's usually mine, but the, Melanie, thank you. Melanie, what's your number? So I'm actually doing a last-minute switch. My number is 3348, which is from our stories, which you'll have to check out. But 3348 is the law in Texas, one of the two tax laws from the 1980s, which allowed private attorneys to go after unpaid taxes and tack on these fees. And the partners, some of the partners in the firm were so excited about this law changing that they named a ranch, 3348 Ranch. And we even got a wonderful picture of the sign that they had at that ranch. So, you know. It just barfed in my mouth. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, Tejas. Anyway, so my number's a little sadder than that. Um, believe it or not, my number's 26, which is the percentage of student loan borrowers who began paying back their loans in 2009 who have since defaulted. 26%. Um, it's a little hard to process exactly how bad that is without like a frame of reference. So if you look at mortgages uh, that were issued in 2006, right? Um, the worst of the, the worst. The worst of the worst. I mean, when things were just really off the rails. Within about five years, 18% of those had gone into severe delinquency, which means they were ninety days, at least 90 days late. Possibly some of them had been foreclosed on. Um, this is really bad. I mean, student lending is just, it is full, just so, so many people take out these loans and end up with their credit ruined um, in court, uh, being chased down by debt collectors. It's its a problem. Something really needs to be done about the way we handle these is, loans. Now, does this mean, because I remember something about the consequence of the mortgage lending in 2006, yeah. which is that a bunch of lenders lost a bunch of money and the entire economy fell off a cliff. Um, 
are any student lenders bearing the consequences of this default rate? Is anyone losing money as a result of this? Private lenders have a lot have much lower default rates. Um, like if you look at Sally, I, I'm not recalling off the top of my head like what Sally May's default rate is, but it's it's not nearly as terrible. Um, so is the government losing money on yeah. it? Well, so they do lose some money, and so let me get into it's a little bit complicated because there's this myth that the government actually makes money on defaults. That's not what happens. You are not allowed to discharge your student loans in bankruptcy. Eventually, the government will collect that money come higher, uh, come hell or high water, and they will um, take your wages. They, they will are... take. They will garnish your wages. Or it, social it's getting, security. What, the problem mm-hmm. is that the government, and this kind of let's come full circle now. The government, in order to do that, has to hire debt collectors. So the government actually loses money in the in the deal. Private debt collectors. Yeah, exactly. And so the government loses money in the deal. Nobody really benefits from defaulting on their loan because they're going to pay it back anyway. They're not going to get rid of the debt. It's it's just a cluster. Uh, and there are ways to fix this system. I'm not going to bore you by just ranting and raving about them. I've written about them at length at Slate already, God knows. Um, but it's just, it needs to be taken seriously. So, yeah. I mean, on the other hand, I feel that student loans, yeah, it is It is a mess. It does need to be fixed. People default much more freely on student loans than they default on almost any other debt, um, partly because they're so confusing and it's very yes. easy to default on student loans by mistake. Yes. Even when you think you're paying your student loans, there turns out to be one in the corner somewhere that you forgot exactly. about. Exactly. It is a, it is a, it's a bureaucratic morass. And students, of course, are the people who move around a lot, so it's very hard to have an address for them and it's hard to track them down. Yeah, it, the whole thing is a complete mess. And if any of our amazing Slate Money listeners want to start the next multi-billion dollar Uber valuation style private company, someone who can fix this broken system just on a sort of platform level with some technology is something desperately needed. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. I think this is going to be a super long podcast yeah, but a anyway. Good one. But this a, is a good, good one. one. You're welcome, people. Yes. Well, I, I'm, I'm, giving, I'm giving Melanie 90% of the credit for this. Yeah, I think, absolutely. Can you Woo! come back for more Slate Money podcasting even back. when you don't yeah. have a thing to plug? Totally. This is awesome. It's the purple shirt, too. Fantastic. Yeah, we're all color-coordinated this week. Um, so listen, do please subscribe to this show because if you subscribe to the show then that makes it much more likely that you will listen to the next time Melanie is on. Um, And you can do that by searching for Slate Money in the iTunes store. Um, If you leave a review there, then that will make people even more likely to listen to Melanie and thereby have a happy weekend. Um, (laughs) Do write to us. uh, SlateMoney at Slate.com is the address. We will feature your letters on the air, especially if they feature photographs of Travis Planet with a puppy. Uh, and I would be remiss if I were not to thank the amazing Audrey Quinn, who produced Slate Money this week, as well as our managing producer, Joel Mayer, the executive producers, the executive producer of Slate's podcast, Andy Bowers, um, and all of you listeners for listening. So for Kathy O'Neill, Jordan Weissman, Melanie, and everyone in the Slate Money team, we'll talk to you next week on Slate Money.